Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, it is, uh, if you were with us last week, decidedly warmer uh, inside than outside. Uh, we were um, outside for our fifth anniversary last week. What a um, fun celebration that was, uh, celebrating five years as a church. And um, thank you for being a part of it. It was uh, so fun to be together as one congregation. It was fun to um, lunch together. It took a little, uh, little bit to get uh, kind of that figured out, but man, we, we did it. And then to just enjoy each other, have some fun. Um, one of my uh, kind of, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a pastor, sometimes I think it's okay to say this, like I'm, I'm proud of like our church and proud of the people uh, in our church. And so at one moment um, it was misting and, uh, you know, fairly heavy, like there was rain kind of coming down. And um, I look around and nobody's like clearing out, getting everyone's just like, no, we're here, we're going for it. And so they're just like sitting, you guys are just all eating and you're um, getting a little rained on and it passed and it was fine. So, but man, I would have rather taken the weather today uh, than last week. I'm like, man, why don't we have this? This would have been so much uh, easier, less stressful for our teams. But um, we nonetheless had, an, had a great uh, celebration um, together. Uh, I want to invite you to uh, grab your Bible. Uh, if you have a copy of Scripture, I'd love for you to get that out and get that in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some that you can use. Uh, this morning, you can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that home. That's our gift to you. We're um, happy to be able to provide that. Uh, we are continuing in a series that we are in, going through, walking through uh, the letter of James, the book of James. And uh, James, as we've said um, uh, in, in our series study so far, is an intensely practical, uh, pragmatic book. And uh, this morning is um, more of the same. Um, it is uh, intensely practical for us uh, today. And so I'd love for you to get there. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. As you're turning there uh, to kind of set up where we're going, I think the topic, I just want to tell you from the start, our topic today goes against the grain of Western culture and sadly against uh, even the majority of Western church culture. Um, a lot of what's going on in our culture, I don't know if you know this, is really quite opposite of what God wants. Um, there was a Christian philosopher, Francis Schaeffer, uh, he was most famous for, for starting a commune for the wayward and wandering Christians in the 50s, but um, he was one of, um, just a great thinker in his day. He passed away in 1984, but one of the things that he said is, tell me what the world is saying today, and I will tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. Now, that's an indictment, a little bit of a, a stinging statement toward the church, but sometimes the church tends to follow culture. And why that is not an encouragement or not a positive thing to see or to say is that uh, the church is never meant to follow the world. Instead, uh, the church is expected to oftentimes go against the grain, swim upstream, uh, do uh, things that are oftentimes the opposite of where culture is going. The reason for that is current culture would say that it is about me, right? That, that there's a bit of humanism that is driving um, people's uh, wants and desires, and much of what our world is about is kind of man-centered, right? Um, we have uh, all these devices that have the letter I in front of them, right? It's like the iPhone. This is about me. And um, I was having a conversation with somebody this week and, and, and said, you know what? We have a very personalized world, but it's increasingly less personal, 
right? We, we have these devices that are for us and about us and think about us and kind of present these things. But um, I really thought about this. It was uh, my, my, um, our fourth daughter's birthday is coming up this week. And so we celebrated early because um, we, we had a whole day of festivities planned. So like one evening wasn't going to cut it, right? So we couldn't do it on a school night. We had, to, we had a whole bunch of things. And so um, we celebrated yesterday and one of the kids found on YouTube um, a birthday song that sang, Happy Birthday, Martha. And, um, you know, in one sense, it's like, oh, man, that's so personal. But it's not. It's personalized. Like, there's a, been hundreds of other Marthas that have heard that same song and been like, oh, this is for me, you know? And, and so we have, we want this personalized uh, world that we uh, live in, but then we approach church with the same way. And we think that the church and the church building and the church uh, programs or whatever it might be is, is there to meet the felt needs that people have. But the reality is this, is church isn't really centrally about me. Um, it's not so much about God showing up to check off my boxes. We, as a church, are here for God. This is his church. We are here for him. One of the things that we like to say around here is that we strive to be, we desire to be a vertical church. And what we mean by that is we believe with Jesus as our foundation that we are vertically focused, that we want to glorify God and that the central purpose that we exist is for him. And if we're here for God and it's the purpose and that's the purpose of why we gather, then we want to listen to him and respond to him on what he is challenging us to do. Right? We want to live out these uh, things that he's called us to. And so oftentimes as we approach God's word, we're asking the question, God, what would you have me grow in? What would you have me change? What would you have me do differently this week than I did uh, last week? And today, again, the topic is one that kind of rubs against maybe our culture or even our inward desire. We're talking about the topic, and I give it to you. Today's focus is on favoritism. The book of James turns to this topic of favoritism. And much has been said, even in our culture in recent years, about uh, this topic, right? It's often framed up with words like equality or equity or um, discrimination or uh, things like that. And our culture is trying to, it recognizes the problem. That's, that's certainly um, at play. But our culture is oftentimes missing the root of the issue, our culture often sees the problem and then tries to treat the symptom without addressing uh, the source. Um, this uh, week, actually last, uh, last Sunday morning, I woke up and I had this, this red spot. You can't see it now, but there's this like red spot on my shoulder, which I had noticed the day before, and it was like growing. And I was watching this thing kind of like go down my chest. I'm like, what is this thing? So I um, reached out to a doctor and said, hey, I don't think this is supposed to be happening, um, right? Like, I, I should probably do something about this. And, um, and uh, you know, it would be foolish for me to borrow some of Bree's makeup and try and, you know, just kind of cover it up, right? And pretend that it's not there or that, like, if I can just make it go away so I don't see it. Um, but no, I, I needed some, some medication. So I got an antibiotic and, and I'm pretty sure it was a spider bite or something. No idea where it came from. Um, so that little guy is probably still, still on the prowl. I don't know. Um, but um, but it cleared up, you know, I, I addressed the source of where it was coming from. And that is what we want to do today. We don't want to just kind of talk at the surface level about how do we have some tips and tricks to not show favoritism, right? We want to get after our hearts of where does this come from? What is it rooted in? And the reality is this, church, our hearts 
are inclined toward favoritism. And the church today, like the church in James' day, uh, allowed favoritism to make its way into the congregation. And so James here, what he's doing, he's not telling them some warning about something that's not going on, hasn't entered yet. What he's doing is he's addressing something that is present in the hearts of the people in the church. He's like, this is something going on and it needs to stop. And, and the way that he frames it up, and this is how we're gonna kind of approach it this morning, is um, I, I just kind of, uh, kind of put this heading on it, but like kind of three reasons why favoritism is a really bad idea. Like that's, that's what James is kind of saying here. He's like, don't do it, and here's why. Let me give you some reasons why you shouldn't do this. It's a challenge to the church that we desperately need uh, to hear. Let's go ahead and jump into God's word together. Let's see it from God's word together. If you have your copy of scripture, look at James chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says this, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Can we pause there for just a second? We said last week, if you're paying attention, that James often uses this phrase, my brothers, when he's shifting topics or kind of changing gears. That's what he's doing here. So last week, talked about hearing, doing the word. Now he is addressing partiality. Show no partiality or favoritism uh, as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. He goes on, verse two. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Here is the first reason why uh, favoritism is a bad idea is because favoritism contradicts the very heart of God. It's the very heart of God. Uh, I put in parentheses there, theological. This is a theological reason of why uh, favoritism is, has no place in the church. Let's uh, kind of unpack the text, see what James is saying here. This is what we like to do. Uh, we walk through verse by verse, line by line, kind of looking and understanding what God's word says he says, my brothers, show no partiality. The tense of that phrase right there is not um, an instruction or kind of commandment about like a, a warning. It's rather a, um, a call to stop. So the idea is what James is doing is saying, listen, there is partiality or there is favoritism in the church and it needs to stop. Stop showing these acts of favoritism. In the ESV, we have partiality. The NIV is favoritism. I think that word for us kind of shows a little bit more um, of, of, of kind of uh, helps to capture that meaning. It's a really good translation. Um, it's plural there. It's not just a one-time thing. It's acts of favoritism. So it's kind of happening, popping up in many different ways. And it's happening in their meetings. And what he's saying is it needs to stop. So uh, the, it says assembly is kind of the idea. It comes into your assembly. So somehow as they were gathering, as they're worshiping, as they're together as a church, this favoritism is showing up. So he uses this example to sort of say, like, this is how it could look. If a man who's wearing some fine clothes with a gold ring comes in, what does he get? He gets the best seat in the house. It's like, oh, 
You must be of importance, right? You got some things going on. So why don't you come and you sit right up here? This is, this is the seat of honor. You didn't know it. You chose the seat of honor. This is the seat of honor. Sit right here, and, and, and we, we've got a spot for you. And then it says on the other side, the man with the shabby clothes, a little tattered, a little worn, uh, maybe a um, little smelly, uh, needs um, maybe some um, a shower or something kind of comes in. The assumption is this is a poor man, doesn't have much to offer me. There's not much worth or value to me. So why don't you, why don't you stand back there? Can you just kind of you know, move out of the way for a little bit? Let's keep these seats up here uh, a little more um, uh, prominent uh, there. Or I guess you could, if you want to, sit at my feet here at my uh, footstool. That's the idea. And he's saying, listen, if you do this, this is what you're doing. You're making distinctions among yourself and you're becoming judges with evil thoughts. That phrase there in verse four kind of echoes back to the, the, the way that he framed it in verse one. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's like, why would you show distinction among yourselves when we're all on the same plane? He's like, there are two categories. There is God, and he's up there in his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his magnificence, and we are down here. And he's like, we're all kind of on the same playing field here. And so there's God and there's us. Why would we make distinction among us? We are all, all in this place of need. He's like, when we do it, we become judges with evil thoughts. He's gonna unpack this as the passage goes on. But then he goes on and he kind of ramps it up a little bit and tries to... Um, tries to call out uh, what's happening here. He says, listen, as you, make, as you become judges with evil thoughts, what you're doing is you are showing honor based on these external qualities. On external appearance, you are deciding the worth or the value of somebody. And what he wants to do, what James is doing, what God is doing through this passage is he's trying to treat the source it would be treating the symptom to just say, stop judging. It's going after the source to address your sinful hearts. Notice what he says here. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He says, you're forgetting your sinful heart, that God changed and he moved and he changed you. And so if we're gonna address the problem, we need to get after the source. The source is our sinful heart. So what is it rooted in? Well, when we judge others, it's rooted in first, probably a foolishness, kind of a misunderstanding of, of what we're actually doing or, or kind of, you know, the distinction between God and us. It's rooted in a selfishness, like I want for me, I desire for me, I need for me. Ultimately, it's coming from a place of pride or arrogance, right? Elevating ourselves above others, making distinctions. We are putting ourselves in the place of judge and we're able to judge on external factors, external characteristics, who's of worth and who's of value. And he's like, stop, stop doing it. He says, listen up. And the reality is this, is that if we wanna master the desire in our hearts for selfish gain, we need an overmastering desire in our hearts for something else. And so that happens by acknowledging the source and then asking God to change our sinful hearts. And that's what he's saying here. When he says, listen, the shift in tone, it's strong. It's like, listen up. <laughs> Don't miss this, church. Don't miss what you need to do. He says, God, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? 
And the reality is this, is that God has used the poor. These are, I think, flowing out of truths that we see throughout Scripture. The reality of Scripture, there's three truths throughout Scripture that we see echoed in James, and that's this, that God has concern for the poor, the downtrodden, the outcasts. That comes out throughout Scripture. You see God's heart for the poor. Equally, God's people are called to imitate God by showing a similar concern. How many times does God, with his people, with his church, say, listen, you need to care for those who have less than you, those who are unable to help themselves? And then there there is, in many places, an association of the poor with the righteous. Like he says that there are the poor shall inherit the earth. Now, what he's not, what he's saying in there is when he's saying that the poor shall inherit the earth, or the poor shall inherit the kingdom, rather, um, it's not that all poor, just by being nature of being poor, you now have a free pass into relationship with God, into the kingdom, but rather it's saying that the poor are a whole lot closer to recognizing their spiritual poverty and thus being able to respond to God in this way. So poverty we see as, as, as it's being used here is more than just a financial state. It's an emotional, it's a spiritual state here in this place too. And what he's saying is God has chosen those who are spiritually recognized their spiritual poverty and he's promised them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's why Mark 10, 23, Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes in our wealth, we don't recognize our spiritual need. And so this is, church, what we are called to do as Jesus' church. And one of the ways that we say it around here is we want to welcome anyone who wants to be here. And so that's kind of the idea. Is like if someone's coming into your assembly, welcome them without judgment. And so I think we believe this, is that there is no person who comes into our doors who looks the wrong way, or no person who has the wrong story, or no person who has the wrong stuff, or no person who has the wrong race. There's no person who has the wrong background. There's no person who's wrong for being here. If you want to be here, if you want to hear and respond to and worship Jesus, then you are welcome here. Do you know why? Because what we have in common is far more than, we could, than what would separate us. We all, we all need Christ's forgiveness. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of Jesus in the same way. We are all sinners in need of Christ's forgiveness. That is the truth of scripture, Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's why we are able to welcome without judgment because Jesus Christ welcomed all, welcomes us who come to him. And the reality is this, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus chose you to inherit the riches of the kingdom of the world. Let that be your overmastering desire. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Forgiven sinners are broken over their own need for Christ's welcome. Forgiven sinners are broken over their own need for Christ's welcome. That is what then motivates, moves us to a place of welcoming others. And so he's saying here, you need consistency among yourself. Verse four, have you not made distinctions? Are you not divided among yourself? If you forget the welcome which Christ showed you, if you fail to show that same welcome, that same invitation to others. 
Who are we that we would show favor to someone who has some external status? So favoritism, it doesn't align, it contradicts the very heart of God. The second, let me give it to you and then I'll show it to you in God's word. It's, it's number two, this, that favoritism doesn't even make practical sense. So he kind of moves from the theological and goes to a pragmatic. He's like, practically speaking, he's like, it's not a smart play either. Notice what he says here, Let's back in verse six. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is reminding them of not some generalizations about the rich, but, but these are real situations that are happening in their life. They're like, do you not, did you forget? The rich are, are oppressing you. There's some places where the rich are, 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 are actively um, going after people, and, and, and this is a reflection of the social landscape. So kind of three reasons why this doesn't make practical sense is because, first, the rich are oppressing the people. There's radical social polarization in that first century, right? If they're rich and the poor, there is a huge gap between. And there is active oppression that's happening of those between the haves and the have-nots. He's gonna come to this later. We're gonna, we're gonna come back to this in chapter five. James um, gives this example of merchants and landowners that were taking land and possessions from the poor. So this is one of the ways that this is happening. So clearly it was an issue in the church because he brings it up a couple of times. So again, not some generalization, but specifically. But second specific reason why it doesn't make sense is the rich were taking advantage of the court system. He says, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And so they're taking advantage of sort of the, the structure that had been set up to gain more wealth. In fact, what they're doing is they're stealing. They're using the system to take from those who didn't have much. You know, I think we see this today in many different forms. One way that is very obvious is um, the way that sometimes those who have, right, the rich, can take advantage of those who need uh, through credit. Um, specifically, like pawn shops or payday lenders. Where do you see those things exist? Right? They're in the uh, part of town that, that, that is economically uh, challenged. It's, it's not in the, um, quote unquote, like, you know, rich part of town or fancy part of town or, or if you see those. So, so what's happening is it's people that are in a bind, right? In debt, need some quick cash, need some money to get through it. And so they, they go to the pay, payday uh, loan, they go to the pawn shop, and, and what happens is they, they get what they need in a quick fix, but, but in the long term, they're taking this high interest, and now they owe back. And so what's happening is they're, they're, they're taking advantage of the, the opportunity and the system. It's not good. The rich, third, it says, are blaspheming the name of God. The church is known at this point as Christians. That would be little Christ or Christ followers. They've taken on his name. And this is, listen, this is the name by which you were called and they show no regard for the name of Jesus. In some way, in a practical way, they're dishonoring the name of Christ. They could care less about the Jesus that we worship. And there should be a righteous defense given to the name of Jesus. 
Uh, over the years, I've had opportunities to lead teams and, and take trips to the country. It's in kind of southern Africa, um, Eswatini, and um, it's a true monarchy. It's a, it's a place where there is a king, and the king is not doing a fantastic job, hasn't been for some time, but let me tell you, when the people talk about the king, there's honor and there's respect and there's a deference that's given, and you don't, you don't like badmouth the king. And, and if you were, there would be some, you know, hey, that's our king. There should be this, this accountability, right? If we hear others saying, blaspheming the name of Jesus, that we're like, hey, that, that's my king. You don't talk about my king that way. You don't respond that way. And what he's saying here is that it doesn't even make practical sense to honor the rich in this way. And this isn't the main point of this passage, but I think it's a, it's a good thing to illustrate here at this time is that sin will tell your heart a lie. What's happening is even though it doesn't make practical sense, sin is telling their hearts that this will be good for me or this will gain me some advantage in some way. And the reality is it's not. Uh, there's a couple of verses that we could point to that would tell us this, this truth. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul understood this, felt this in a similar way to the church in Rome in, in chapter seven, verse 15. He said, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. The reality is this, is that sin is not good for us, but we desire it for a fulfillment, for a pleasure, for a gain, which it will not give. And he says, what are you doing? He's like, stop, it's not helping you in the end. James is trying to point out to them that sin is a, is, is a master in the oppressive sense and it never gives back. And so we're being deceived. Our hearts are lying to us. He's calling us, he's calling the church to give our affections to the true God. He's a good ruler, a good king, a good master. And so he says, it doesn't make practical sense to show favoritism in this way. The third reason we find in uh, verse eight, as it continues on, he says, listen, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love the na your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. If he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The reality is this. This is the third reason why favoritism is a bad idea, is that uh, it goes, it's a sin that goes against God's law. In the end, favoritism ultimately is a sin. You know, all ethical conduct can be framed, all the law can be framed under this desire, this, this call to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And what he's saying is, is that you are under the royal law, that is the law belonging to the king, the law that has been given to us is passed down through our Christ, our Savior, Jesus. And let's say for the sake of argument that someone were to keep the entire law but shows favoritism, what he's saying is you have now transgressed the entire law of God. 
He's trying to say, hey, it's not like a, so, a social flaw. It's not kind of a mere kind of faux pas or a small mistake. He's like, listen, let's not mince words here. Favoritism is a sinful action. Showing partiality is sin, and it's a breaking of God's entire law. James kind of unpacks this. This is helpful for us, too, if we want to understand the way that the law of God works. The law of God um, is a pass-fail, okay? So it's not graded on a curve. You don't get points for getting close, right? There's not participation uh, ribbons that are handed out. It's not, you know, kind of this place. If you fail in one, you fail in it all. That's what he's saying. He says, the same God that says don't commit adultery also said don't murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, it's like it doesn't matter. You still fail. You are a transgressor of the entire law. And so he says, so speak, so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. What's that? Well, God rescued the, uh, the, the, his, his children, his people from Egypt, right? Out of the Egyptian um, captivity, and then what was the, one of the first things he did? He led them into the wilderness. He led, them, uh, led Moses up onto the mountain and he gave them what? The law. He says, listen, you are now my people. He saved, then he gave the law. He says, you are my people. This is how I want you to live as my people. He's like, this law is not gonna save you, but this law is uh, a picture of, of what my people live like. Similarly for us, he saves us and then he calls us to, to honor and to live and to serve him as king that we would be under that law of liberty, right? We're not saved by living out the law and its perfection, but because we are people that have been saved and forgiven of much, then we desire to live righteously before our king, before our God. And he says, live in such a way that you are living under the law of liberty. So speak, so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, He's like, you still have to give account for how you're responding to the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and the righteousness which he has imparted to you in your life. 1 John 4, 17 says this, by this is love perfected with us, within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. We love because he first loved us. Listen, we're not sitting back wondering how is the record gonna stand against us. If you are in Christ, if you have looked to him and his work of salvation upon the cross for your salvation, for your redemption, for your forgiveness, then you have confidence before him that his perfect work will be applied on your behalf. And so that's not why we love, that's not why we live this out, but we live this out because of the love that he has shown us. We extend grace to others because grace has been given to us. And so this is where we understand that mercy, it's an evident byproduct of a heart that has been changed by grace. That's why he says, mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't judge, be merciful. You've been shown mercy, show mercy to others. I'd love to kind of drive this home for us by, by referencing a story um, that we have of Jesus and one of his interactions. You know, we've said before that... Um, G, uh, James was the, uh, the brother of Jesus, right? And so he would have seen and heard and knew the stories of Jesus. He was present for much of it. I'm sure as he's writing these words to the church that, that the, the encounter that Jesus had in Luke chapter seven uh, with a woman 
in the house of the Pharisees came to mind. It was an example of Jesus doing this very thing. Um, to kind of refresh us, if you aren't familiar with the story or um, have never heard it before, there's a woman, and it's kind of the, the context is sort of a woman of the streets, a woman of the city. Um, so the implication is probably a prostitute or, or someone who's engaged in, in some sort of activity like that comes to before Jesus. He's at the house of a Pharisee. These were the religious rulers, the leaders. He's been invited into a house. He's dining there with them. And this woman comes in and she has an expensive flask of oil. She breaks the flask. She pours it over Jesus and she begins to worship and anoint his feet. And the Pharisees are appalled. They're like, who is this woman? How is she allowed in here? If Jesus only knew who this woman is, he wouldn't allow her to do what she's doing. And him knowing and seeing and understanding, perceiving their hearts, addresses it. And he says, listen, she has chosen the right thing. Like, this is, this is good. This is right. She is welcome here. You should be more like her. And he's calling out their their judgmental, their, their favoritism that is at play right there. And so this is an example of what this is to look like. And early on in the life of our church, I think it was within the first year or so, we went through a series and we, we, we talked through a series of things that we wanted to embody and kind of live out as a church because we saw them reflective in the character of God. And one of those things that we said that we wanted to do as a church, and again, this is the very beginning of the life of our church, we said this, that we want to welcome without judgment. That was one of the things that we were going after because we saw that in the heart of God. And as I said at the beginning, I don't think that church is always a place, right, that people feel that they can come in and be welcomed without judgment. I mean, how many times that we we've just sort of kind of get in past, but like you put on your Sunday best, Right? And that, that refers to more than just the clothes that you're wearing. Like you gotta get your life together and kind of get into a right spot to be able to feel like you can walk through the doors of the church. And what we said is, listen, I don't think that's reflective of the heart of God. He welcomes people as they are, doesn't expect them to change before they come to him. He welcomes them in and says, listen, I love you. I care for you. I want to work in your life. And that is what we are called to as a church. And so the way that we've tried to live this out and I'm sure we've missed it at times, but this is where we're going after, is that we would say, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you have or don't have, no matter what you look like or what you wear, no matter what your darkest secret is, no matter what, we will welcome you here as a church. Let's define our terms so we're on the same page, what it means, what it doesn't mean. What we're saying is welcoming is receiving appreciatively the presence of another and communicating that to them. We want to receive appreciatively the presence of one another and communicate that to each other. Do you want people to come into these doors to feel like they are being received appreciatively and that their decision with us is, is appreciated and, and that their desire to grow with us is appreciated? Is that, is that the heart of our church toward anyone who would walk through our doors? But this is the key, though, not just to welcome, but to welcome without judgment. Let's define judgment. It's a negative assessment of another person based on superficial sense of superiority, right? We make assessments, we make determinations based on external factors, that was what was happening here in James. He says, listen, you see the man wearing the rich clothes? No idea the character or quality of his heart? No idea his story or anything on it? You're just assuming that he's a place that deserves a place, or a person that deserves a place of prominence. 
Likewise, you see the man wearing the shabby clothes and you put him in the back, assuming that he has nothing to offer. And so you're putting him aside. We make judgments all the time based on external things. We see, we interact, the way that someone is dressed, the way that they, um, their, the accent that their voice might have, the, the um, clothes that they might be wearing, the car that they're driving, the house, that they, like all these things. And then we, we assign people's worth associated to it. You know, sometimes the external things will tell us a few things about them, okay? I'm not saying that that's always wrong. Actually, this week on Friday morning, I got a call um, from, uh, it was an unknown number, so I answered it, as I like to do. Um, it's a game for me. And uh, it was the Border Patrol. Uh, they intercepted a package with my name on it that was stopped in El Paso, and there were some drugs that were located in this package, and I was in trouble, Okay? And uh, the thick Indian accent on the other side was a bit of a tip-off to me. Now, again, I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying that, that every person with an Indian accent has that, but, but that is where a lot of those kind of scam, kind of prank calls happen. And so immediately, what does my mind do? I'm making some external judgments about this person, and I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt but I'm going to play with him a little bit, okay? And so I like to do this. I'll kind of like, oh my goodness, I was very concerned. I start, you know, they, they start giving me, he gave me his badge number and I pretend like I'm writing it down. I'm not writing it down. And, um, and, and, and you know, well, what do I need to do? And how am I going to fix this and all this stuff? And, and um, eventually they kind of figure out that I'm not biting on any of it and they will hang up and take me off their list, okay? So if you need me to answer your phone when they call, I will do that, okay? That's how I get rid of them. You ask them to stop, they're not gonna stop. You do that enough times, they'll take you off their list. They're like, this guy wastes our time. I'll see, it's a game. I'll see how long I can keep them on the phone. That's my goal. And, um, and so that's what happened, okay? I know, I probably need some help. There's probably you know, more to it than that, um, but that's, that's kind of the approach that I have. But what do we do? What do we do? We hear, I heard it. I'm like, man, this guy's not Porter Patrol. Like, I'm just pretty convinced that he's, he's not the one representing. Now, I happen to be right, because he did. He hung up on me, and apparently they solved the problem, right? The package, whatever it was, whatever they wanted from me, they figured it out on that phone call um, with very little information given on my uh, behalf. But this is what we do. We see, we make judgments, we base our assessment, and what happens is, there's a superficial sense of superiority that comes out on that end. And the reality is this, what James is trying to tell to the church, he says, listen, you can't judge and you can't welcome at the same time. He's like, one is gonna be true. And so you need to suspend your judgment of others and welcome them in, pointing them to the hope and truth of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we are seeking to do, church, not just here corporately, but hopefully in your life as individuals, in your own heart, your own interactions with people, that you are guarding yourself against judgment toward others. Let's just be clear. I think there's some, several places in Scripture that we can define this, but here's what it means to not judge. Don't judge means this. It means to never judge broadly. We would define that by drawing preconceived conclusions on matters that you don't know about. Right? So looking at the situation, assessing from a broad swath, and then making some broad judgment about someone in their situation. That's what was happening here. The clothes were telling the whole story about the person and the worth and the value of them. Luke 6.42 says, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your own eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own. So we don't want to judge broadly. 
Number two, don't judge means never judge motives. Never judge motives. We can't say, or we should never say, I know why she does this. I know why he did that. I know why they think like this. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, for the Lord, for the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the reality is this, is that's God's territory. Only God knows why she is like that. Only God knows why he is really struggling that way. Only God knows why that is so hard. And so we have to be careful when we judge people's motives, we put ourselves in the seat of God. When we say, I know why they are that way, I'm ascribing to myself the characteristic that belongs only to our Lord. And so we don't want to judge motives. Number three, never judge quickly. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 warns against this. It says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. <laughs> so that says, if we don't judge quickly, it says that I, I, I don't know everything. It's willing to say, I don't, I don't have all the details. I don't know all of the facts. And if you've ever looked at something or looked at someone and said to yourself, I don't understand that, the reason why you can't figure it out is because there's some information that's missing. And that's why we want to be careful that we don't judge quickly because we don't have all the facts. We don't know people's story. Man, I'm telling you, it is so easy to miss out on opportunities to speak into or be an encouragement in someone's life if you quickly assess judgment over that. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had and I, I, you know, I recognize the assessment I'm making and then as I talk to them, as I interact with them, I'm like, oh man, there's more going on than I thought. There's more that, that got them to this spot. There's more that they've walked through. And as we take the time to do that, man, we can really understand and get to know people and their situation and ultimately help them more if we are careful to not judge quickly. And fourth, I think the Bible is clear about this, and that's what James 2.13 is getting at, is to never judge harshly. Never judge harshly. James 2.13 says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. He says, listen, judge others how you would like to be judged. The Bible's pretty clear about our call to judge others in a way that we want to be judged. This comes out as a parent with my kids, right? One of my children will bring me a situation and they have a judgment already worked out in their mind for their sibling. Like, how do you want me to deal with it? Drop the hammer, dad, right? Like, get, throw, throw the whole thing at them. They gotta learn. They gotta know. I'm like, do you want me to judge you with that? Is that next time this happens? Is that what I'm doing with you? Well, you know, I mean, there's probably gonna be a reason why and I, I'm probably gonna need like more, more gentle prodding to kind of get there. So, um, you know, right? This is how we, but we don't change from that. We, we want others to be judged in a way that we don't want to be judged ourselves. God, give me time. Understand, be patient with me but yet we don't extend that same patience, that same willingness to others. Let's be clear, church, that there's no mincing of words. The gospel is very, very exclusive in its message. John 14 says, I am the way, the truth. Jesus is saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So there is, if someone is going to receive forgiveness and life and redemption, it's going to be through the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. That's very exclusive. But, 
It's very inclusive for its recipients. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved what? The world, that whoever believes in him shall be saved. Whoever believes in him shall be saved. That is very, very open and given to whoever would respond to Jesus. And so this is what we are trying to do, church. We are trying to seek that same level of welcoming love to others that Jesus did to us. We were the ones who were poor in spirit. And Jesus was patient with us. He was gentle with us. He showed us mercy. He moved and wooed and kind of pulled us in in our hearts and brought us to a place that we would respond to him as Lord and Savior and that we would find the grace that we need, the forgiveness that we have to have, right, and the life that we're looking for in him. And so when we do this with others, we're trusting that there, if there is, and there is, right, if there's any change of those that come into us, if there's any change that needs to be made, any sin that needs to be addressed or repented of, any actions that are required, that those are gonna happen best by welcoming people like Jesus did and then pointing them to him. We wanna welcome like Jesus and then introduce them to Jesus knowing that he alone has the power to convict, to save, and to make new. And this is the place that we are in. We'll be clear about it. We welcome, but there's not, I don't think any one among us that needs to stay in the same spot. Listen, are we not all seeking to change? Are we not all trying to grow in some way? Is God not developing and changing and shaping each and every single one of us? That is what God is doing in us. And so we want to allow the spirit to do the same thing in the lives and the hearts of others. When we welcome warmly, when we welcome without judgment, we allow Jesus to do that work. Again, he's the one who's gonna convict. He's the one that's gonna save. He's the one that's going to make new. So if it hasn't been clear so far, I would say this. Wherever you live, whatever car you drive, wherever you work, whatever you've done, wherever you were born, whatever last week looked like, we all have the same disease called sin. And we all can, in Christ, find the same grace and the same forgiveness that we all need. And if we found it, we've only found it in him and him alone. And so we offer as a church that warmly without judgment to you. We would point you to the hope that we've found. We are poor in spirit in need of Christ's work in our life. And we would point you to the hope and the grace and the truth that's found in him and him alone. And then, prayerfully, humbly, we're asking God to continue to reveal to us where sin might still remain. Is this a sin that might still be holding on in our hearts? Is there places or evidences of favoritism in us that would be a part of our congregation, part of our church, part of our family, part of the way that we live this truth out? If there is, then we need to repent of it. We need to ask Jesus to give us a new heart, right, to expose those sinful desires that are at the root of that, that he would change us and make us new. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope and the truth that's found in you, Jesus, and you alone. Lord, we were sinners in need of a savior, and you came that we might find forgiveness through your death, your perfect sacrifice for us and God that we might receive the life that we are desperately looking for in you 
brought by the power of your resurrection. And so, Jesus, we come before you and we look to you as our example, but God, more than that, as our Lord and our Savior. We want to humble ourselves before you, God. We want to extend your love, the love that we've received. God, we want to extend that same love to each other. Help us with this. Lord, help us to live this out in our assembly, certainly, but God, in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We remember, we celebrate, we reflect on that now. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.